gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Hey, listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Very excited about today's guest. He's not technically a first-timer, um, but he his first time was when David French um, was substituting for me. So it's his first time with the um, flagship host of, of the Dispatch's flagship podcast. I'm referring to Yasha Monk. He's the author of a great new book, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart. He's a professor with several different impressive, intimidating titles at Johns Hopkins, uh, contributing editor of The Atlantic. And um, I have to say it's a little weird. Serendipity is the wrong word. I think serendipity implies good fortune in some way. But given a lot of the themes in Yasha's book, the fact that we had a really horrible mass murder in Buffalo just the other day from a, um, an idiot goon who's bought into replacement theory. Um, it seems sort of fitting to have Yasha here because your book, in fact, begins with a story about people accusing you of running a, a, a replacement theory uh, uh, experiment. That's sort of where the title of the book comes from. So why don't you sort of start with uh, that story and sort of setting up what the book's about? Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, yeah, so look, three or four years ago, I was in Germany uh, promoting my my last book, The People vs. Democracy, and I went on a big German uh, news show uh, and was asked about causes for the rise of Bofortan populism. And I said, look, it's got to do something with economic stagnation of living standards for average people. It's got something to do with the rise of the internet and of social media. Uh, and it's got something to do with uh, the fact that countries like Germany used to be mono-ethnic, monocultural uh, democracies, which because of immigration and other factors have become much more multi-ethnic, uh, that this is uh, a historically unique experiment, which will create some real problems, but, but it can and has to succeed. Um, and I was reasonably happy with the interview. <clears throat> my mom, who watches my German language interviews and usually dislikes all of them, said I did very <laughs> well. I went to sleep, caught a plane back to the States, and woke up, switched on the cell phone, and was uh, surprised to find just, you know, dozens and dozens of uh, messages denouncing me. And uh, uh, either cursing me out or thanking me for having finally admitted to a vile conspiracy that I and Angela Merkel were supposedly running on the German people. Um, and so when I use the term great experiment, what people had, had, had understood it to mean is something like an admission of the great replacement theory, something like that these elites who are deliberately trying to replace the German people uh, to make it more pliable or something like that. And what, of course, I had in mind was an experiment in the way that the American Republic was an experiment at the end of the 18th century, which is to say an attempt uh, to uh, deal with unforeseen circumstances um, to try and build a self-governing republic under conditions when there wasn't really precedent for doing that successfully um, and trying to figure out how that can succeed as you go along. Um, and I think we are now in a kind of second grade experiment uh, because our societies have become much more ethnically and religiously diverse than uh, they used to be. We are trying, unlike in big stretches of American history, uh, to actually treat people as equals irrespective of ethnicity, irrespective of their religious beliefs. Um, and we don't quite have recipes for how exactly that can succeed, but the alternatives are unthinkable. The alternatives are the kind of violence that we saw this, this weekend in Buffalo, although we've seen so many times in history and wars and uh, genocides and forms of uh, ethnic cleansing. Uh, and so in my new book, in The Great Experiment, I try to uh, explain why that's actually a hard thing to do, why an understanding of the difficulty can give us some hard-won optimism uh, about our present reality um, and to lay out some of the philosophically liberal principles uh, for how we can uh, uh, make that work. So, I mean, one of the points that you get into um, up front is that this is a problem for a lot of societies, but the societies are different. And uh, this is not, I mean, this is a descriptive fact, right? That they ethnically homogeneous Sweden dealing with 
large amounts of immigration is going to respond differently than the United States, which, yeah, there was always an elite that had a notion of a sort of ethnic homogeneity to it, but it was, it, you know, there's a lot of retroactive or sort of retconning of the history to say that it was a white elite. Well, also white poor people in the United States. It was a very much a white Anglo-Saxon, um, you know, sort of wasp elite of a certain kind that um, uh, did not have large feelings of social solidarity with other whites per se. And in fact, defined a lot of whites as not white. Um, and so America's had a much different experiment than what Sweden's doing, what Germany's doing, what even Australia to a certain extent is doing. Um, what, you know, who's doing best among the, we'll come back to America in a sec, in a second. Who's doing best at this among the formally ethnically homogeneous nation states at figuring out how to be a diverse democracy? Yeah, so so let's start with sort of these different histories, right? I think, uh, you know, in the book, I describe the sort of main historical modes of failures of diverse societies and diverse democracies more particularly. Um, and you have uh, what are called structured anarchy. So you have some places like Afghanistan or Somalia where, uh, you know, different groups have always been so hostile to each other that they never managed to build a common state with really bad consequences because you end up without uh, sensible road networks, without... Uh, high quality public schools without uh, any functioning public health system with very bad effects for standard of living and uh, economic well-being. Uh, you have deeply fragmented societies like Lebanon, where you essentially don't have a society of individual citizens. You have uh, a confederation of different groups that uh, somehow hold the peace, have a kind of semi-functional state, uh, but really regulate the most important uh, questions within their own communities. Um, but but the ones that are most relevant in the context you're talking about in the United States and, and Western Europe is what are called domination. Uh, but, but there's two different forms of domination that's very relevant here. So in Europe, uh, in Germany, you know, where I grew up, <clears throat> the country is current democracy gets founded, the only successful German democracy gets founded after World War II at a time where, because of the Holocaust and the crimes of the first half of the 20th century, the society is quite homogeneous. So from the beginning, the political institutions of the Federal Republic of Germany are formally pretty inclusive. They say we treat everybody equally and uh, every uh, human being has dignity and all of those kinds of things. But in reality, it's very easy because there's very, very few people around who don't fit into the majority group and they still suffer all kinds of uh, disadvantage in, in practice. Um, but that's not very visible because there's just not very many of them in 1950, right? Um, something like the United States has a history of heart domination. So America is very diverse at its founding and, of course, does experience big waves of immigration uh, all the way through, uh, at least until about the 1920s, when for about 40 years the immigration laws become much more restrictive. Um, but uh, it also excludes in extreme ways uh, some forms of a population from the very beginning. Um, and so each of these societies is still marked by the long-term legacy of that, right? In a lot of European societies, you have these sort of formally neutral institutions, but um, actually quite a lot of social and cultural exclusion uh, in practice. And that's improved, but that is the, the basic challenge of their face. In the United States, um, uh, uh, we have now finally managed to overcome the formal disabilities on uh, parts of the population. But of course, our society is still deeply structured by the long-term impact of centuries of, of chattel slavery and Jim Crow and all of those other kinds of things. So I would say that each of these societies just comes at the current moment through a different trajectory and that presents it with unique problems. But what both of them share is that they've never actually built a deeply diverse democracy that, that treats everybody as equals. Now, you know, I, I thought that I could go and look at the country that does all of this the best. Um, and then spend some time there, report on the country, it sounds like fun, and then come back and say, hey, we, we have to emulate what they're doing. And I'm just less and less convinced uh, that there is a country that's doing it all right. Um, I, I think actually the state of all of these societies is reasonably good. Um, I think there's reason to be quite optimistic about what you know France or Germany look like today compared to 40 years ago. I think there's reasons to be very optimistic about 
what the United States looks like, um, not at a political level, but the level of what's actually going on in society compared to 40 years ago. But I don't think there's one place we can look at and say, we just emulate Canada or Botswana or somewhere, and, and then everything's going to be great. Uh, that, that, that I think is naive. So um, um, you talk about two things that are very near and dear to my heart. One is what um, um, I, borrowing from an evolutionary psychologist, John Tooby, called the coalition instinct, which is basically just the tendency of human beings to form groups. And two, on the essential, nay, I would say existential question of whether hot dogs are sandwiches. Um, and, uh, one day we are going to wipe out all the people who believe that hot dogs are sandwiches, but, um, why don't you sort of walk through the connection between these two things and just be really careful not to step on my values that hot dogs are not sandwiches. I will, uh, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I take many controversial stances in the world, but I have never pronounced myself in this question and I shall keep it this way in the podcast. <laughs> um, so look, when I was growing up, I could feel from from my mom and my family, this sort of sense that there's something dangerous about groups, right? I mean, uh, I come from a family that's been on the receiving end of what Jonathan Haidt calls groupishness for many generations. Um, uh, in the Holocaust, uh, even after that, my parents, when they were 20 years old, were thrown out of Poland where they grew up uh, because the communist regime, which had uh, supposedly had the ambition of treating everybody as equals irrespective of their uh, ethnicity and religion decided to throw all of the Jews that remained in Poland at the time uh, out of the country. Uh, and and I think the conclusion that my mother in particular took from this was the sense that there's something dangerous about groups because they can motivate this uh, favoritism for, for insiders and this hatred towards outsiders. And so if we want a better political future, perhaps we should uh, figure out a society in which everybody just identifies as an individual, or perhaps a cosmopolitan, perhaps somebody who just cares equally about everybody in the world. And I was very shaped by that. But the more I looked at the politics of the last few decades, and the more I read up on social psychology, uh, the more I realized that uh, this might be naive. And I was very influenced by the work of Henry Teifel, a social psychologist who uh, lost a lot of his family in the Holocaust, uh, and tried to figure out in the 50s and 60s, you know, what is it that makes groups tick? What is it that gets them uh, to be uh, to, to to follow what what you call the coalition instinct, right? And he said, "Look, I have an idea for how to figure this out. I'm going to create groups that are so silly, that are so meaningless, that the members won't uh, discriminate against outsiders. And then I'm going to slowly ladle on uh, more attributes to these groups until they reach a point." where they uh, start to discriminate. And that'll teach us something about what makes groups potentially dangerous, what makes them tick in this kind of way. Um, and so he got a bunch of kids into the lab in Bristol in England, and he showed them a sheet of paper with, let's say, 150 dots on it. And he said, have a guess how many dots are on this sheet of paper. And so some guessed 125, and some guessed 175. and said, great, I'm going to put you into a group of underestimators and overestimators and have you play a bunch of games against each other. Uh, and he thought that in these games, they wouldn't uh, discriminate by groups because the groups were evidently silly. Uh, but he failed in a very interesting way because even this label, underestimators and overestimators, was enough to create some form of group identity. And that motivated these kids to favor members of their own group over that of others. And so I've recreated this with some of my students at Johns Hopkins. Hopkins is an incredibly diverse campus. My students think of themselves as the most tolerant people in the world. In some ways, perhaps they are, and others, perhaps a little bit less. Um, but when you ask them whether a hot dog is a sandwich, and you have them debate that question, the kids who think that a hot dog is a sandwich start to discriminate against the kids who think that a hot dog is not a sandwich. And vice um, versa. And vice versa. It's not just one part of this uh, question that is uh, <laughs> uh, capable of discrimination. And so, um, uh, you know, all of this started to push me towards revising my attitude towards groups. I think groups are capable of motivating real evil. They're also capable of sustaining some of the biggest achievements of mankind. And our instinct to form groups goes so deep that we're never going to be able to overcome them entirely. What we have to ask ourselves is how to structure those groups. Um, uh, what kind of groups can be conducive to uh, 
our flourishing together in a diverse society? And under what circumstances do we become dangerous? Under what circumstances do they motivate the kind of hatred that we saw so tragically in, in Buffalo? And so that is one of the difficulties of building a diverse society, that we have this instinct towards forming groups. And that is historically often torn diverse societies apart. And often historically, it's torn them apart, not along silly lines like, do you think that a hot dog is a sandwich? Um, but along the lines of ethnicity and religion and culture, and to some extent nationality, um, to some extent language, um, that has motivated some of the worst crimes in, in human history. And so that's the difficulty of, of building diverse societies. That's why this is not an easy undertaking. Yeah, I mean, I, so I, I, I've been banging my spoon in my high chair about a lot of this for a long time. The, the, you know, what I call the cult of unity. You know, there's this deep, deeply ingrained thing, particularly in democracies, but also in every other society for, for the groupishness that we're talking about, that thinks all problems can be solved through unity, through unifying, through all of us putting down our differences and working together. And in sort of the same way that you say groups have done wonderful things and done terrible things, Unity is a morally um, neutral concept, right? It's 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 a tool, uh, a concept of strength in numbers, and you can do wonderful things with it, and you can also form a rape gang with it, right? You can form the mafia with it. Unity in and of itself is neither good nor bad. It is it is it is only what the object of the, what you're going to use unity for that defines the moral salience of what unity is, and I think that this is one of the things that it often gets democracies into trouble is when you say we all have to unify around what I want to do, what you're really saying is you need to shut up and get with our program. And, and that's why calls for unity in a partisan context, except in things like the aftermath of nine 11 and a couple other just truly category shattering things tend to actually harden out groups to feel like they're being bullied rather than, invite them in into a, in a, into a patriotic project. Um, and I don't know how you solve that except to have politicians stop talking about unity for trivial things, um, which is something that politicians by their nature will never stop doing. Yeah. So let me start just on, on, on the level of, of, of patriotism, right? So I, I think where you get to when you take seriously this tendency to form groups is that we're always going to have subnational groups uh, with us, and we're always going to be very influential and very powerful. And frankly, as an immigrant to this country, that's one of the things that I love about America, that Americans have these strong uh, cultural and religious communities uh, to which we give a lot of importance. It's a lot of what makes up the vibrancy of this uh, society. It's a lot of what you know leads to charitable giving and um, to people having a sense of belonging and all of those things. I think what's important is that people don't just have those subnational forms of belonging, right? If we enter a society where everybody is just defined as uh, an Amish or a Southern Baptist or a Jew or uh, only defines themselves or primarily defines themselves by their ethnicity, um, then we really are in danger of becoming a federation of hostile or perhaps just mutually just about tolerant tribes without any sense of connective tissue, without any sense of what we also have in common at the same time. And so I think the best way of dealing with that is to invite multiple identities, right? Uh, I have a friend who um, worked for a German ministry, uh, uh, a government ministry uh, uh, a few years ago, and was asked to go around interviewing uh, German youth, whether they felt Muslim or German. That is, of course, a terrible way of framing the issue because ideally they should be able to feel fully Muslim if, 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 if that's what uh, their religious conviction is and fully German at the same time. It shouldn't be a contrast between those two things. Um, and that's something that the United States has historically been uh, somewhat better than European societies at, at facilitating. So um, it's wonderful that people are going to continue to want to honor the, the culture of their ancestors, that they um, will have strong forms of religious worship. And at the same time, they should also feel uh, connected as, as, as Americans. And so that's why I, uh, as somebody, you know, as a German Jew, patriotism does not come naturally to me. Um, but that's why I've slowly become convinced of the importance of patriotism. The question then, of course, becomes, what kind of nature should that patriotism take on? 
Now, there's an ethnic conception of nationalism, which says that um, those who truly belong are defined by their shared ancestry. Um, I think that is no longer a realistic description of what most democracies actually look like today. In most democracies, there are people uh, with origins in other countries who have uh, become, in a very natural way, members of those societies and have big um, contributions that they can uh, and are offering it. Um, it's also normatively unappealing. I don't see the, the normative significance of the fact that we, you know, uh, supposedly have some kind of shared ethnic uh, ancestry. So we should reject that kind of notion of nationalism. Uh, what we should embrace is a second one uh, of civic and constitutional patriotism, of saying that what makes us Americans uh, is a shared commitment to a set of ideals. Um, and this, I think, helps to provide an answer to that question of unity. Because if somebody is saying, hey, I'm in charge now, and there's some external enemy, there's some external threat, and what you have to do as an American is to shut up and go along and be part of unity, and otherwise you're un-American, otherwise you're a traitor, I think on a constitutional notion, uh, on a civic notion of patriotism, you can respond by saying, yes, I'm, I'm a proud American and I love this country, but that's precisely why I don't think that we should be engaged in an unjust war. That's precisely why I don't think that we have a right to intern members of our own country because of their ethnicity or whatever else your objection might be. It's why those few brave Russians who have been protesting the Putin regime in the last years and Putin's uh, uh, terrible invasion of Ukraine uh, are, are true patriots because they're saying not in our name, not in the name of the Russian nation. So I think civic patriotism is really important. And I was proud when I became a United States citizen in 2017 to swear to defend the laws and the constitution of the United States against all enemies, uh, foreign or domestic. But I want to add something here because um, most people just don't care that much about politics. And I think we fool ourselves as intellectuals if we talk about the great virtues of civic patriotism uh, and come to think that that's actually how most people think about the nation. I think most people, when they say they love America or they love whatever their country may be, are talking in much more straightforward terms. They're saying they love its cities and landscapes, its sights and sounds and smells, its cultural scripts, which sort of govern how we interact right now, its celebrities, its TikTok stars, even sort of silly aspects of, 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 of culture. And so I think what we should embrace as a second positive dimension of patriotism but kind of everyday cultural patriotism, uh, which doesn't have to harken back to an imagined past. It doesn't have to be about the costumes that people uh, or the dresses that people wore as they walked down the plank from the Mayflower. It's about uh, a dynamic, ever-changing, forward-looking American culture today, which in a very natural way um, is diverse, bears the mark of influence of people from all over the world. And so I think, um, you know, a little bit of unity is good. A little bit of connective tissue is important. We don't just want to be a federation of different tribes. Um, but part of what makes us American is uh, a shared culture. And part of what makes us American is shared values, which also allow us to speak up against the unity when we feel like it's an unjust unity, when it feels like it's a unity that's being pressed into service of unjust political causes. Yeah, so there's an enormous amount I agree with in there. I mean, for, for starters, you know, I've always distinguished patriotism from nationalism and the American political tradition. The hero is the guy who stands up to the mob, not the member of the mob. And I see nationalism as more adjacent to mobbishness than to, you know, one with the law on his side as a majority. I'm completely with you on the need for multiple identities. I think, you know, one of the great enemies of serious thinking is, is monocausal explanations of anything. And as I often say on this podcast, nobody ever goes to a car dealership and says, I want a red car, right? I mean, you, you have, there are other variables that go into your decision-making, you know, you don't necessarily say, all I know is that the woman I marry is going to be left-handed, right? I mean, like <laughs> there are other variables that you need to consider. And so I, I'm with you on that, but I do want to push back a little bit on this. I mean, I'm, I'm very much classical liberal individualist on most political constitutional questions. I like the Bill of Rights because of its non-democratic nature. Um, but um, as my colleague Yuval Levin recently argued um, with me on here is that the Bill of Rights and the Constitution in many ways 
needs to be understood as protections about group rights as much as they are about individual rights. And we've spent so much of the last 200 and odd years boiling them down and refining them in our conceptions to individual rights. But, you know, the freedom of religion clause was put in there largely to protect small um, uh, charismatic churches that did not, you know, fit into the, the establishment religions and whatnot. And, and, and Yuval puts this in the context of we need to revive a Republican ethos in this country that allows different communities to be sticky, to have their own way. And what I worry about, um, I'm not saying you're doing this, but what I worry about, you know, cautions against becoming a federation of groups is that it feels a little strawmanish to me, given the fact that local communities are unwinding, as we see, the, the, the big sort is largely having to do with um, the fact that we don't need to be engaged in local communities. Uh, the reason people are leaving church is that because they're, you know, becoming much more individualistic. And part of my my concern is is that the the if you go back and you say, look at Obama's second inaugural, there is this vision, this progressive vision out there, where, which is very powerful, which says that there's this, the government in Washington and there's the individual. And whatever the individual can't do for themselves, the government in Washington should do. And that's not how people most happily live. That is not the best life to have. And it, it completely nullifies or erases all the Burkean little platoons, all of the, the sort of nooks and crannies that give life meaning as lived um, in real communities. And if anything, I think we could use more healthy groupishness in this country rather than the fake artificial groupishness, which is what our national politics have become, where we are basically creating digitized virtual cable television tribes that have no rich lived experience to them. Um, they're barely they're really just crips and bloods on a sort of partisan level that have you know you know and to get back to groupishness you know i mean the the crips and the bloods you're too young um and you weren't here anyway when they were a big deal but in the 90s the whole thing about crips and bloods is they would kill each other because one guy wore blue and the other guy wore red and there was nothing you know there's no deep philosophical notion of the trinity or you know monotheism or any of that kind of stuff it was just sort of like that's them and we're us and th I think our national partisan hysteria and tribalism is partly a function is that we don't have healthy groupishness at the local level where people actually live. Yeah, so look, I, um, uh, let me start with an observation, right? I come from a family that's Jewish, but that's not religious. Um, uh, my, my grandparents grew up in shtetls in, in Eastern Europe, in fact, in what's now Western Ukraine, so around Lviv. Uh, and as teenagers, somewhat distantly. Yeah. <laughs> we're probably, you know, seventh cousins or something yeah. like that, I'm sure. Um, and, uh, you know, as, 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 as teenagers, they believed in the ideals of communism, they came to, they were converts to com communism. It was like a form of religion, I suppose. Uh, because they, they they believed in uh, both the way they, they feared the way in which religion had often set people apart and led to wars and uh, terrible conflicts, and they hoped that this universalist uh, ideal uh, might somehow uh, inspire a more harmonious world, a world in which, among other things, Jews would be treated more fairly. Um, and when they paid for that illusion very heavily over the course of their lives. Um, as uh, not only the Soviet Union made uh, a pact with Hitler, but um, uh, the Polish communist regime, um, which they helped to build up, turned on them and said, uh, we, we don't want any Jews here. You're not loyal. We, you should be thrown out. Um, so I uh, grew up without much religious practice, and I'm not a religious person myself. And so it was tempting for me to blame religion in the way that some of the new atheists did in the 2000s uh, for a lot of the uh, uh, evil in the world. And, and, and I now think that that's uh, too short-sighted in two important ways. It's too short-sighted because religio religion absolutely can play the role of groupishness, right? One way in which that coalition instinct can play out is, I believe in this theology and you believe in that theology, so I'm good and you're evil. But it's only one of many different ways in which humans can fulfill that instinct. You take religion away, uh, you're going to replace it with another set of criteria for saying, 
we are us and 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 you are you. Uh, and the second point is, as you're saying, that in a country like the United States, uh, I, I think a lot of social scientists had the naive hope that secularization might lead to greater tolerance and more mutual understanding and uh, generally a sort of more, more thriving society. What we've actually seen is that, um, especially uh, among people who are not elite, who are not uh, embedded in professional networks who don't have large circles of friends, who don't have a lot of money and all of those kinds of things. But in people who live in, in the middle of uh, the country with fewer opportunities and so on, um, the religious communities were incredibly important in terms of giving them a stable set of beliefs and in terms of connecting them to other people in the community, in terms of giving them a reason to uh, reach out to others and help them, and in terms of giving them a network that could help them when they were in need. And as a lot of those things have eroded over the last few decades, you've gotten the extreme kind of isolation um, that has driven a lot of the depths of despair uh, across the United States. Um, and, and the most striking thing about the opioid crisis, as Andrew Sullivan has pointed out, is that this is not uppers that are party drugs, uh, like some of the drugs that were most prevalent in the 80s and 90s. It is downers, which you take if you're zonked out in front of a TV and you're miserable and you just want to switch off for a bunch of hours. And that has something to do, among other things, with the loss of religious uh, community. Um, so I agree with you that uh, the sort of glib rejection of those groups uh, has been a real problem. And so when I talk about philosophical liberalism in this book, and I have a whole chapter devoted to this, um, I have a sort of ongoing dialogue with communitarian philosophers. And, and there's two important things uh, that I do in, in, in that dialogue, right? The first is to say that um, uh, you cannot understand what a free society would look like if you put the community before the individual. Because one of the things that the society and the state has to do is to protect individuals from the ways in which their own groups might come to be oppressive. And that is a very real fear, right? There are people today who um, might be 15 and might be gay and they're being put into really oppressive uh, and violent forms of conversion therapy. There are, in many places in Western Europe, uh, 20, 20, 21-year-old uh, Muslim girls who are being told by their parents who they can and who they can't date and sometimes being... Uh, uh, punished in, in extreme ways or threatened in extreme physical ways if they uh, don't live in accordance with the wishes of their parents. And uh, if your uh, account of society starts with groups rather than with individuals, you cannot develop a satisfactory account of why that is unjust and why we have a responsibility to protect people from the pressures of their own community. Now, on the other hand, I also try to develop an answer to what I take to be a serious communitarian critique of liberalism. So people like Alistair McIntyre say, look, philosophical liberals like to think of individuals as uh, just reinventing themselves from scratch at the age of 18, right? You're sort of hatched by your parents when you're 18 and you just like think about the world and you choose how on earth do I want to live, right? Um, do I want to be X person or Y person or Z person? And, and they rightly say that is not an accurate account of how most people go about their lives, because most people continue to believe in the religion of their parents, are embedded in uh, networks of obligation with their kin, feel grateful to their parents for the way they've been raised, feel uh, an amount of responsibility towards their younger siblings or cousins. And, and that continues to be their frame of reference for, for most of the life in an evolving kind of way. And so uh, they claim that individuals, that, that liberals uh, who always talk about the individual cannot deal with that. They can't deal with the importance of kinship networks and the importance of religion. And I think that that is a fair critique of the wrong kinds of liberalism, but actually mistakes the nature and the ambition of liberalism for exactly the reasons that you outlined. Because, you know, what are the fundamental liberal rights? It is the right to free worship. It is the right to free association, Right. Liberalism, rightly understood, gives individuals the right to lead a self-determined, in a self-determined manner, not because we're assuming that uh, they will completely reinvent themselves at the age of 18, but because we want to protect religious communities and other kinds of communities 
from the tyranny of a majority, from the interference of a state, while also giving people the ability to leave the community of the parents if, if, if they so choose. So I think uh, a liberalism rightly understood values groups very, very deeply, recognizes how important they are in the lives of most people, gives them the rights that they need in order to sustain these really vibrant communities, but always under the proviso that groups to be respected and to be just cannot coerce their own members. But the reason why we have such deep respect for religious and cultural communities in the United States is that people choose freely to remain members of them and could, if they so chose, some people do, leave them and strike out on their own. And that, I think, is the right, uh, so that's the right response to communitarianism, which is not capable of giving us the freedom to leave our communities, but it's also the right response to a sort of uh, too individualistic notion of liberalism, which uh, uh, can be in danger of uh, uh, losing the, the respect for groups that, that most of them, uh, if they're not coercing the members, deserve. Um, I, I'm very sympathetic to all that. I, I, I do think, I just, I don't want to start a big argument about it. Um, it's worth pointing out, um, I think, that, um, you know, I just finished reading uh, Frank Fukuyama's book, and I think his, 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 it's a great book, but I have issues. Um, uh, but his discussion of Rawls and the sort of Rousseauian um, strain of liberalism, which is not my strain of liberalism, which celebrates the notion of personal authenticity, this sort of this sort of reinvention, which for a lot of people starts even earlier than eighteen. Um, one of the problems that we have, I think, in how we talk about a lot of this stuff, is that you know, sort of progressive elites, the people who are sort of in charge of, of setting the narrative at a lot of elite institutions, they immediately will hear your points about the gay kid in some rural town or the Muslim daughter in some uh, conservative Muslim community. But you change those fact patterns to say, parents who uh, strongly encourage their kids to have um, you know, a, a, a multi-gender, pan-gender, transgender, um, identity at a very young age, um, all of a sudden any objection to that become, has a completely different cultural valence. And I think that this is one of the ways in which, you know, the groupishness of, of the sort of, a, a, the progressive elite tribes, um, is particularly pernicious because they don't see themselves as a tribe. They think they're cosmopolitans when in fact they've internalized all sorts of faddish notions. And I'm not trying to pick a fight about transgenderism. You know, my only point is, is that progressive elites, this, this has been my longstanding gripe got about progressivism generally, is that one of the things I like about American Anglo-American conservatism, at least until about five years ago, is that we acknowledge our dogma, right? We, we actually say, okay, here's our dogma. Here are like our bedrock principles and here's where they conflict. The, you know, the ranks of conservative eggheadery are full of arguments of the trade-offs between freedom and virtue and liberty and order and all these kinds of things. And I think because of the pernicious influence of American pragmatism, going back to James and Dewey, a lot of liberals are invisible, are blind to their own priors. And they think they're empiricists. They think that they are just following the facts, right? Um, and they think that other forms of ideology, which uh, they are somehow illegitimate and sort of brainwashing, but they don't, they see the world clearly. And I think this is one of the sources of a lot of the problems that you get is that a lot of technocratic type progressive elites that you're probably more surrounded by than I am, um, do not appreciate that they are in fact in co imposing cultural values on a society. They think that they are just being purely rational or purely moral and there's no ideological you know, uh, commitment or cultural commitment to it. When in fact it feel, if you're on the receiving end of the social trans social engineering that a lot of progressives put forward, it feels very much like the imposition of an alien culture, sort of like the Germans felt about, you know, uh, French liberalism being imposed upon them. And I think that's where you get a lot of the, you know, the sort of the would be herders and fix of the American right today, these sort of quasi often illiterate nationalists, what they are saying is we're being imposed upon by 
this this foreign elite, which they try to make even more foreign by saying they're run by George Soros or Davos or whatever. But the underlying complaint, I think, is a real one. And I don't know how you deal with that. I mean, how do you deal with that? So there's two points here, I think. The first is a blindness to groupishness. And the second is a blindness to a particular ideology. So Tom Lehrer has a wonderful line. Um, you know, some, it's very important to love your fellow human beings. And there are some people in the world who do not love their fellow human beings. And I hate people like that, <laughs> um, which is a wonderful way of, of putting this, this, this point. And I think there's this sort of way in which uh, uh, you know, some of my friends and acquaintances, and probably me in the past, I thought, look, you know, uh, I, 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 groups are really dangerous. And I'm not a member of a group. You know, I'm just um, uh, an enlightened human being who's beyond those kinds of particular attachments. And my God, are people like me better than the people <laughs> who are parts of groups, right? right. And so, 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 so the lack of rootedness or the lack of belonging in a traditional kind of group becomes your form of groupishness. And it leads you, the way that groups always do, to be built to be very altruistic towards members of your own group and be able to write beautiful texts and go to a lot of effort to glorify your own group and also to a lot of callousness towards anybody who's not a member of that group, right? So, so that's one point. I mean, the second point, uh, and so liberalism is quite clearly an ideology, right? Uh, it is uh, a set of ideas about how best to structure a society. Um, uh, and I think uh, philosophical liberalism does in fact have the best answers, for example, about how we can live together peacefully in a diverse society while giving people the freedom to be both true to their identities and religious beliefs and be in some kind of harmony with each other. But this is a substantive position of which I have to try and convince your listeners. It's not just something that I can assert by, by fear. Right? So that's the first point. So can the can I ask one point, quick factual question about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This distinction, maybe you just reject it entirely that Fukuyama makes, which I think has a lot of merit, of the sort of the classical liberal, Adam Smith libertarian tradition of, of philosophical liberalism and the, um, the sort of Rawlsian, Rousseauian uh, justice is is prior to the good, um, uh, sort of uh, self fulfillment form of liberalism. Do you, when you say that philosophical liberalism fixes those problems, are you incorporating both? Are you re you reject that distinction? Yeah, so I would put it in slightly different language, but but I think I'm getting at something similar, which is that there's a distinction between a political liberalism and a comprehensive liberalism, right? So so a political liberalism says, look. We live in this society where we have vastly differing beliefs, right? Some of us believe that um, uh, having sex before marriage is going to uh, condemn you to eternal hell, right? Some of us believe that sexual self-exploration is a really important thing of what it is to be a flourishing human being, right? How on earth do we keep the peace? How on earth do we create a society where we can get along? Now, we, we might try to do that by forcing everybody to believe the same thing or forcing everybody to, believe, to, to live in the same way. Um, you know, that, in the language of Federalist 10, is a way of trying to reduce the number of factions that we have in society, the, number of, the amount of variety we have in society. Um, but uh, as, as Federalist 10 argues, um, uh, uh, reducing liberty, extinguishing liberty in that kind of way is a cure worse than the disease. Um, and so we need a set of rules which allow us to live with that conflict. And part of the set of rules is to say, hey, you get to go and have as many sexual partners as you want, and I get to go and proselytize about how it is morally wrong to go and have sex before marriage. And we might find each other annoying, but, but you know, we might preach against each other, we might even rail against each other on social media or in pamphlets, but... We don't get to beat each other up and we don't get to lock each other up and we don't get uh, to make rules that, that restrict uh, the way that each of us lives in our private sphere, right? And that to me is uh, the only way we're going to be able to make a project like the United States succeed. Now, there's a second thing, which is a comprehensive liberalism, which goes beyond that, which says, you know what, the best way to live is not to remain a member of your traditional community. It's not to worship the, the faith of your ancestors just because you happen to be born into that family. It's not to 
be deeply embedded in kinship uh, networks of mutual obligations to go out to New York City and become an actor or an artist and, you know, lead a life of self-exploration, right? Um, and I think the problem is that a lot of people are both, right? A lot of people are philosophical liberals or political liberals in the sense that they think this is the best way to govern our society. And in their private lives, they tend to be quite attracted to a comprehensive notion of liberalism. And that makes it easy to run those two things together. But they're really importantly distinct, right? So I am somebody who um, believes in political liberalism as a solution to how we can make a country like the United States works. I am somebody who happens to fall uh, relatively far on the comprehensive liberalism scale in terms of how I myself lead my life, right? I live a continent away from where I grew up. Uh, I'm an academic who spends a lot of my time thinking and writing about the world. Uh, I'm not a member of a religious community. But I recognize that I don't get to impose that on other people. That's the right choice for me. Or perhaps it's the wrong choice for me. I don't know, but it's the choice that I've made. It's not the right choice for a lot of other people. And I have come in part by living for a long time in the United States and coming to appreciate the dignity and the importance of all of those much more traditional communities that, that, that give meaning to a lot of my compatriots and structure their lives in often very, very productive ways to realize that I don't get to judge people who live in a different way. I don't get to look down on them. I don't get to think that they should somehow be living like me. And so where certain leftists or certain progressives get into trouble is when they go beyond the philosophical liberalism and try to impose the kind of comprehensive liberalism or a kind of liberal lifestyle that I myself happen to share um, on other people. And I, I agree with you absolutely that that is often where uh, you end up with forms of intolerance that are justified in the language of tolerance, and that's very, very pernicious. But, but that's not a problem with philosophical liberalism rightly understood. And one of the contributions I try to make in this book is to tease those distinctions out. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, uh, what you know, my colleague David French um, gets beaten up for all the time is as defending "quote unquote" procedural liberalism. The post-liberal integralists and the nationalists think that that procedural liberalism is morally neutral, and um, and I understand why people might think that because a lot of it is about mechanisms and procedures that keep people from killing each other. And that's a good thing in and of itself, right? It's a way to adjudicate profoundly different conflicting visions. But it bothers me a great deal when people say that it has no moral content, because I actually think like, you know, like I'm sure your, your, your parents and your relatives in, in, in Poland and elsewhere see some moral content, content in the right to confront your accuser. Right. Um, or the, um, uh, the right against self-incrimination or the right to a fair trial. I mean, you can just go down a very long list of things that the right to worship freely, you know, that these are deeply more moral commitments that get wrapped up now and become invisible uh, as, as moral commitments because they're so wrapped up in the proceduralism. But, uh, there's real, there's a, there's a real conception of the good underneath a lot of these sort of procedural mechanisms. Um, you're free to comment on that, but I, 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 I do, cause I know you got to get out, um, at, at a specific time on the groupishness thing. You know, I haven't finished your book yet. I'm about halfway through, but the thing that keeps crying out to me, particularly in the context of the Buffalo shooter is that as you note, right. As, as Toshful, uh, you know, documented, People will come up with ab arbitrary things to be groupishness, groupish about um, if they don't have concrete things. I am not saying that race is an arbitrary thing, but when you tell people, as a, when you sell a society that race is the most important thing in the world, you are buying groupishness. There's just no way around it, it seems to me. And, um, and there's some more benign forms of groupishness about it. And there's some more evil forms of groupishness, obviously, about it. But when you like the re I'm, I reject the replacement theory, conspiracy theory stuff. But at the same time, I kind of understand why a lot of disgruntled 
essentially losers. I mean, it's, that's the weird irony here is the champions of white supremacy aren't the ones controlling the commanding height society. They're, they're really people who are left behind. And for, for obvious reasons, I mean, if you're reduced to saying the thing that makes me a superior human being is the color of my skin, it's probably because you don't have a lot else going for you. That's exactly right. That's, you know, I agree with that entirely. And so, um, but you've had a lot of rhetoric going back the last 20 years, you know, Roy Tashiro, who I'm a big fan of, but you know, the, the coalition of the ascendant stuff, the, uh, the, the Hudson report, which put out, you know, 20 years ago about how it was going to be a majority minority country, the, the, the constant talk about how whiteness and white supremacy need to go and that the white majority country is a bad thing. We know there's a lot of social science that says you, you keep calling people racists, you're more likely to make them racist. You, you keep saying people that what defines them is their race. They're not going to say, yeah, well, now I hate my race. They're going to come up with some abstract or pretextual justification to defend their racial identity, which they may not have had before. I guess the question is, if you want to have less racial friction in this country, isn't there an argument that some level for, I don't want to use the Moynihan phrase, benign neglect, but stop talking about race as if it's the Rosetta Stone about everything in our lives? Because if you say it's the most important thing in our lives, you're going to get people on two sides of that divide, and that's how you heighten racial conflict rather than lessen it. So, um, you know, the, the Great Replacement theory is is a crazy conspiracy theory which says that often very conservative politicians uh, who made the decisions which have led to more immigration and demographic change over the last decades in the United States and, and other countries like Germany somehow had the secret ambition to uh, replace the existing populace with a more pliant one. And, and it's crazy and it's very upsetting how much mainstream attention uh, that theory has has gotten and how uh, people on the network that you uh, honorably left uh, recently <laughs> uh, have continued to uh, to push for it. At the same time, I'm very struck uh, by the way in which Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives can't agree on anything today, but they can agree on a really ambitious set of assumptions and predictions about American society and politics, which are distinctly a cousin of great replacement theory. And that is, first of all, the idea that uh, you can meaningfully split American society into two camps of, broadly speaking, whites and broadly speaking, people of color, that because of demographic change, uh, this group of minorities is uh, growing in such a way that they will come to be in the majority by around 2045. And then secondly, that this is going to have obvious political consequences and predictable political consequences uh, because uh, white voters are more likely to vote for the Republican Party and non-white voters are more likely to vote for the Democratic Party uh, and therefore Democrats are going to have this natural advantage in the future. But there is this rising demographic majority uh, for Democrats. Now, both of those ideas are empirically deeply dubious. Irish Americans were some of the most reliable voters for Democrats in the 1960s. Today, they're some of the most reliable voters for Republicans. Um, we see that in 2020, uh, Donald Trump was competitive in the election, mostly because he significantly increased his share of the vote among every non-white demographic, including African Americans, Asian Americans, and especially Latinos. And Joe Biden became the legitimately elected 46th president of the United States, in large part because he significantly increased his share of a white vote relative to Hillary Clinton in 2016. And so the idea that you can, uh, and by the way, there's, there's now first polls, the outliers, so I don't want to overstate it, but it's, it's, it's striking. I saw a poll a few days ago, which shows that in the 2022 midterms, Hispanics will be voting for the Republican Party in greater numbers than white people. So this whole idea that you can predict where American politics goes 30 or 40 or 50 years from now by just running the demographic numbers is just wrong. And uh, Republicans are wrong about this. Democrats are wrong about this. It's really dangerous that they're wrong about it uh, in the same way. I would go a step further and say that uh, the assumption that you now have on many parts of the right and far right, but also on many parts of the left and the progressive movement, that you can understand America by 
splitting it into two tribes of whites and people of color is a fundamental misunderstanding. We have a huge rise in the number of mixed race people in the United States. Uh, Hispanics uh, uh, are a group, many of whom consider themselves white, uh, many of whom are descended from Europeans, many of whom, if you look at the politics of, of, of Mexico and other Central and South American countries, are considered white within the political context they come from. And so to think that they're somehow naturally people of color is just a bizarre way of thinking about the world. You have Asian Americans who are, are very socioeconomically and educationally successful, um, while they uh, are saliently non-white in, uh, in phenotypical terms. Um, it's very unclear where they fit in the complicated racial dynamics of the United States and more unclear still where they will fit in 20 or 30 or 40 years. And so the idea, so I've actually started to reject the seemingly neutral scientific description of America being majority minority by 2045. If you buy the one drop rule, and if you buy it not just for African Americans, but for uh, demographic groups to which that rule has never historically uh, applied. And if you think that anybody with one drop of non-white quote-unquote blood will act, behave, and think in meaningfully different ways than anybody with, uh, without that drop of non-white blood, then according to that definition, yes, America will be majority-minority. To talk about this as though it was the obvious way of understanding America today or in 30 years is a, a grave empirical mistake. And it is at least as grave a moral mistake. Look, uh, uh, America is deeply shaped by its history. And part of its history is the centuries-long exclusion of African-Americans. So we can't just stop talking about race. We have to be honest about the way in which it shaped our present. But part of our ambition for the future has to be that we remedy the disadvantages that people have historically faced to such an extent that uh, those forms of ethnic identities become less rather than more important in the future. But we build a country in which people will start to identify less by their ethnicity because their ethnicity structures their life less than it does now. And so we need to have the aspiration to build a country in which uh, the division of whites versus people of color uh, comes to be much less descriptive of what the society feels like than even it does uh, today. And here I think, you know, it's easy to point fingers and rightfully point fingers at some of the people who have mainstreamed the Great Replacement Theory. I think we should also look a little bit self-critically at the mainstream discourse, which has echoed it in, uh, which has echoed that conspiracy theory in, in really unsettling ways. Yeah, and I, I agree with that entirely. Um, I would just add, one of the most healthy ways to, to deal with the obsession with race, which is something you do in the book, it's something I've been arguing for a very long time, is um, just point out racial progress. You know, just the, the fact that, like, the idea that this country is, like, riven by race hatred when something like one out of eight intermarriages are, bi are interracial, you know, it's just weird. Like, white people can't have congenital hatred for blacks if they're willing to have babies with them. Right. And similarly, the polling on how many people would move if a black, how many white people would move if a black person moved into their neighborhood has gone from something like 94% to 4% in the last 50 years. Just simply pointing out that the sort of 1619 project adjacent thing that there's been no racial progress is useful. But it also would lower the temperature about race in the country in ways that um, a lot of, I, I, a lot of people don't want to do. Look, I, I find there's something interesting um, about this topic more broadly, which is that a lot of people start when they think about how to build and make succeed these ethnically and religiously diverse democracies from a point of naive optimism, right? They don't think about the groupishness and all of the difficulties and challenges we've talked about. They say, how hard is it to get along? How hard is it to be tolerant? How hard is it not to hate your neighbor? How hard is it not to be a racist? And that's very understandable. But that can very quickly lead to, to pessimism, even to fatalism. It can lead to then looking at the challenges and injustices that we have in our society, which are real, and saying, well, there must be something uniquely terrible about us. If we are failing at this easy task, how can we possibly hope for a better future? Uh, what I try to do in The Great Experiment 
is uh, the converse of that, the opposite of that. I start with an account of why what we're trying to do is really, really difficult, why so many diverse societies in the history of the world have fallen apart, have failed in uh, terrible and, and violent and brutal ways. But that allows us to look back at the current state of our society and recognize that we're actually doing comparatively well and that we've made very, very real progress. Look, in 1960, about 6% of Americans thought that it was morally acceptable for a white and a black American to marry. Today, about 6% of Americans think that it's morally unacceptable for a white and a black American to marry. That doesn't tell us everything about our society, but it tells us that some things have changed in very, very uh, important ways. By the way, when you look at immigrants, um, there's people on the far right who think that today's immigrants won't succeed because there's supposedly something inferior about the non-white immigrants coming in from Central America and Asia and Africa. There's some of my friends and colleagues who say that they won't succeed because our society is so discriminatory and so racist that they don't stand a chance. The reality is uh, that despite some real obstacles that they face because of their origin, uh, they are succeeding at about the same speed as Italian and Irish immigrants did a century ago. Now, none of this is a recipe for quietism. None of this is a recipe for saying let's not fight against the injustices today. None of this is to say that everything in our society is perfect. Um, but I do think that when you understand why building diverse societies is so hard, and then look back at uh, our society today, you can recognize the progress of the last decades, and you, you can become more sanguine about our ability to do what really matters, which is to, 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 to build a vision uh, of a society, to build a future society in which most people would actually be excited to live, in which we actually, uh, whatever group we're part of, can say, that's a future that I would be excited for, and I'm willing to put in the work uh, to, to bring that society about. Okay. I, I can keep going, but I know you got to go. Um, uh, Yasha Monk, thank you so much for doing this. The book again is The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart. I highly recommend it. And I hope to have you back. Thank you so much. Uh, I'd love to be back. Okay. So, uh, Yasha has left the, the studio. Um, I really could have gone on for quite a while about all this stuff. Um, you know, one of my, um, frustrations is that, 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 you know, there is so much more, you know, I, 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 I touched on a lot of these things in or explored them at chapter length in suicide of the West. And I still feel like I haven't had my full, um, airing of that book. And, um, so I'm, I'm really a, attached to some of these issues, um, in all sorts of ways. And, um, I think Yasha does a really fantastic job of threading a lot of difficult needles. Um, obviously he's more on the progressive side of things than I am, but you have to really listen for it because I think that he's one of these guys who more than almost any other of the left of center eggheads understands this, the, the importance of what he calls philosophical liberalism, um, as distinct from what he calls comprehensive liberalism. I got to think about whether I going to sign on to those labels for, for those things. But, um, I certainly agree with where he comes from and all that. Anyway, I got all sorts of things I could ramble on about all of this and I have more questions for him, but I promised to get them out on time. Um, so, uh, expect more of this. I, I, I do think this is sort of an interesting follow on to my conversation with Yuval from last week. And, um, Anyway, got a lot of new guests coming down the pike. Some folks in the comments were complaining that we were too AI heavy of late. Um, I really, I, I want to be really clear about this. I, I, I understand the complaint. I'm not saying it's baseless or anything like that, but, uh, you know, I, I don't pick guests by going like, okay, who at AI can I get today? You know, it's just not how my brain works on it. And, um, and I think the world of AI and my colleagues at AI, and I think they're some of the best people to have on the remnant. Um, but at the same time, you know, mixing it up a bit and getting some fresh blood on here is probably a good idea too. So I reserve the right to have whoever the hell I want on this podcast because um, that was the one deal I made when I first launched this thing at, at National Review is that I was going to do it the way I wanted to do it. It's sort of like the G file in that way. Um, 
And with that, we're really looking forward to next week's uh, 500th Remnant Palooza. Um, and um, uh, I guess I'm done, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>